0: very much. This is the best um, pulpit that we managed to arrange. <laughs> it isn't ab- <laughs> absolutely ideal and the light isn't all that good. So when we come to verses, my print is a little small, I may call upon you who are sitting in the window immediately to read. Now don't please be shy about that because if you don't read immediately we shall be here far too long. Uh, that will help as we go along. A second thing to say is that this church has recently been captured for the gospel. Um, It was bankrupt, apparently, and uh, the diocese refused to put any money into it and offered it to my successor, William, whom I think many of you know. And it's being used at the moment uh, for the Chinese congregation. As you know, there are masses of these East Asian students around in London, as there are all over the West. And we have a big Chinese group. Uh, I'm not saying they're all converted yet. Um, They come often for social reasons, of course, and friendship. When one person comes, another comes and joins them, and so on. But it's a wonderful opportunity. And so that's how this place is being used at the moment. We're going to study to Peter. I'm grateful to Roger for the invitation. I always do what Roger tells me. (laughs) That may not last for the rest of my life, but it has so far. And I'm grateful for the opportunity, of course, because the person who benefits most from these studies is the person who has to do the work beforehand. I'm going to call to Peter, which is um, a letter the scholars don't like very much, but I find that churches are becoming very hungry for it. It's certainly not one of the main letters of the New Testament, but it's full of treasure. And we're going to try to find out this morning, not all about it, that would be impossible, but to find out what its basic message is. I've called it a tract for our day, and I'll start by introducing the people who are involved in this little letter. So we'll look first at the readers, and then the troublemakers, and then the apostle, but I think we better have a text for our our letter, and so the last two verses... I think, make a very good text for the letter. So if you haven't got if you're in the Old Testament moment, perhaps your neighbor would quietly nudge you and say, in well, 2 Peter, okay? Can you all hear me, Mother, over there? <laughs> you can, fine. <laughs> <laughs> verse 17 of chapter 3. Therefore, dear friends, chapter 3, verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, it's actually beloved, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless, and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and ever, forever. Amen. Let me introduce first to you the readers. As you see from chapter 3, verse 17, their position spiritually is a secure one. According to chapter 1, verse 1, They have received, it's an astonishing phrase, uh, uh, brothers and sisters, let's look at it. They've received a faith as precious as ours. Written by an apostle, that is an extraordinary thing. What it means is second generation believers were not uh, lacking in privilege because they were second generation. By the power of the Spirit, these Christians had a faith as precious and real as the apostle himself. So they are secure Christians. They've received a real faith. They are equipped. Look at chapter 1 verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us. That's a great reassurance, isn't it, at the beginning? So God has equipped us in our pagan environment, an environment increasingly true for us, to live a godly life. So they are fully equipped by the Holy Spirit of God. And chapter 1, verse 12, you will see that they are established in the faith. So I will always remind you of these things, says the writer, Peter, even though you know them, I'm not telling you anything new, and are firmly established in the truth you now have. So I imagine that Peter, looking at the churches for which he felt a special responsibility, and uh, as he started his morning one day, he looked at his diary and said to himself, well, I don't have to bother about these churches. They're firmly established in the faith. They have a secure position. They have a real faith, and God has equipped them. I don't have to worry about them at all. But in fact, as you see at the end of the letter from the text we've just read, he then says they're likely to be carried away. Now that is extraordinary, isn't it? The verb to be carried away there is exactly the same as Paul used about Barnabas in Galatians. And if good, faithful Barnabas could be carried away by meretricious arguments, then anybody can be carried away by them. So I think that's the first great surprise here, that the Apostle Peter, knowing that these churches were well established in the truth, not newly evangelized, but stable and steadfast, yet were in real danger, are being swept aside just as Barnabas was for a while. So we come then on to the troublemakers. They must be real troublemakers. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. By the way, this writer refers a great deal to the Old Testament. And sees that the Old Testament has a great deal to say to the New Testament churches. Because the church has taken the place of Israel. And therefore he can guarantee that what happened to Israel in the old days will be certain to happen in the churches in the new order. And mm. that's a very important point, isn't it? Because if you read the Old Testament, it's depressingly clear that for every one true prophet there were many false prophets. You think of Elijah, it was far worse than that, wasn't it? But that's rather a startling phrase, isn't it? That we are given an assurance here. We may not like it. I don't like it we're given a certainty here that there are likely to be more false teachers than true teachers in the professing church of God in the world. And that these people cause a great deal of trouble and can sweep really solid churches away. They are impressive because, of course, the false prophet of the Old Testament spoke directly, rather as some charismatics do today, if you hear some idiot getting up in church and saying I'm getting, God has been speaking to me and I've got a message for you you're in touch with the false prophet of old, aren't you? Because that's exactly what they did. And of course sounded very impressive and people said this must be a direct word and he's inspired by God. We're also told that many people, where is it, in verse 1 or 2, I won't bother to find it just now but you can find it there if you look that already many people were following them. So they're numerous, they're impressive Already many people have been swept aside in these churches for which the Apostle is responsible. And this is much the most important thing of all. They are within the structures of the churches. They're not from outside, shooting in. They're inside, in the structures, recognized teachers in the churches. Uh, They're fundamentally disloyal, of course. But they are people who are accredited as far as we can see in their position. I find that makes these two letters of Peter extraordinarily interesting. One Peter is all about persecution from without. Two Peter is all about betrayal from within. Mm-hmm. I don't need to ask you the questions I would ask a normal congregation. I will ask a congregation, which do you think is more deadly? <laughs> and the average person would say, oh well of course persecution from without which may in fact be coming to us in the next year, as, meant it, as we know, there's more and more of this petty persecution, which may become serious persecution. But actually, that is not deadly to the churches. Very often it strengthens the real church and gets rid of all the fluff, doesn't it? So although we may tremble, and I think I do tremble for the new generations coming up, that may not necessarily be harmful to the church. It may in fact refine the church. But what has been so deadly in my lifetime, what was so deadly when I was a student of theology, what destroyed many theological students was betrayal from within. Mm -hmm. It was accredited teachers of the university who had the position and the reputation uh, of being accredited people who would teach us and um, often what they taught us was extremely harmful. And look at the the denominations in the West today. They've been eaten out, haven't they, by this rot from within, so that the church lost the uh, confidence and the ability to speak the truth as it ought. So these are the destroyers from within. I just want to emphasize that point. I mean, it is so obvious, isn't it, if you look at the big denominations. If you look at the Church of England, for example, it's so obvious, isn't it, uh, that the dry rot is within (laughs) but my dear brothers, it can hit even tiny uh, assemblies. Some of you may remember not long ago, uh, amongst the exclusive brethren, there was a leader who saw it as his right, because he was a spiritual leader, to have sexual relationships with all the women in the congregation. That was a tiny congregation. And they would claim, of course, to be the real believers. And yet, uh, right at the heart of an exclusive brethren assembly was a man... uh, living and propagating a dreadful, sinful life. So we're never safe, are we? These men are lawless. That's the description that is given of them. And they're causing a great deal of trouble, as you can see. When we say that they're fully secure, I was born in Lewis, and Lewis has got one of these wonderful castles. If you climb to the top of the castle, which of course as a boy I did, and many, many visitors do, you say to yourself, nobody could ever attack this place. It's on the top of a high hill, which is again uh, on the top of other hills. Lewis actually means hill, I believe, in Anglo-Saxon. And so no one would attempt to go straight up they would have to come round. In fact, the only battle of Lewis, my geography uh, history is very poor, but it was in fields outside Lewis, because you couldn't attack it. So it's very interesting, again, if you'll take your Bible up and if you can see it, that what we're told about is that they were, look at line two, they secretly introduce destructive heresies. In other words, they don't proclaim immediately, they're going to portray the faith, but that's what they do. They infiltrate the church. So the readers, solid, good Christian people, such as you mix with every week. The troublemakers, a real danger to the church, but not from outside, but from inside. What then about the Apostle? I'm going to say nothing about him except in the hurry. Chapter 1, 14 and 15. Uh, have I got the right verse? I'll read from verse 14, because I know that I'll soon be put uh, my body aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, I'll make every effort to see that after my departure you'll be able to remember these things. So I introduce to you an apostle in a hurry, he knows that his life is coming to an end, and he thinks that his testimony, his teaching is indispensable for the church, and of course he's quite right in that. So much, then, for introductions. Now, it's impossible to do the whole letter, of course, but I want to give you a flavour of the letter, and what I'm going to give you is a three-pronged attack and the three-fold resistance. And we'll start with the three, which will take me most of my time, uh, a three-pronged attack. And I want you to be very... uh, interested, in a sense, in the fact that the attack is at the main citadel, as I've just said. I'm going to tell you that the attack that these men made in the first century was one, on the person of Jesus himself. Well, you can't get closer to the central citadel than that. Secondly, an attack on the scriptures which begin to appear in these later New Testament letters very fascinatingly, as we're going to see. And thirdly, they launch their attack on the Gospel itself. Now that means that this is a major attack. Not on secondary matters as to whether you speak in tongues or whether you baptise babies or not. or perhaps you don't think that is a secondary matter. (laughs) (laughs) This is on the absolutely central things of the faith. If you destroy the person of Christ, if you tear up the scriptures, and if you water down and alter the gospel, then you've got nothing left, okay? That's what's going on. Let's start then with the person of Jesus. (coughs) Uh, I won't point to all in the letter, this will take too long, but we will top and tail to Peter. We'll top to Peter by looking at chapter, uh, at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. There is only one definite article here in the original. Our God and Saviour are not two people, but one. So here, as so often in the later New Testament letters, Jesus is addressed as God. That's the beginning of the letter. Now turn to the end. And we find that at the end a doxology that is addressed only to the Lord Jesus himself. Grow in grace and a knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. There are only two doxologies in the New Testament for certain that are Addressed, if you like, to Jesus alone and not the Father and the Son. Uh, One is in 2 Timothy and one is here. So, right at the beginning of the letter and right at the end, there is a clear witness to the fact in the first century that he's talking about a man who is God, the God man. The phrase at the end of the letter, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is one that you have often had on your lips. And it is one that you have often heard. It may surprise you to know, it appears nowhere else in the New Testament except in 2 Peter. Where it appears three times, chapter 1 verse 11, chapter 2 verse 20, and chapter 3 verse 18. I don't mean that that proves anything, but you see the way they are talking about Jesus toward the end of of the immediately apostolic era. But I think one of the most interesting things is you never know when Peter uses uh, the personal pronouns in that, this letter whether he's referring to the Father or the Son. And I've noticed that some of the learned commentators simply give up trying to work out which it is. For example, in chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need. could be God the Father. It could be God the Son. You can't tell. The same with chapter 3, verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation. Um, our Lord there could be our Lord God, but I think more likely to be our Lord Jesus. The day of God in chapter 3 is also the day of the Lord. It's as though the writer is not bothering as he sits at his study table to make a distinction. Because of course he believes already in one God, doesn't he? Mm. Which we should never lose sight of. We are not tritheists. we believe in one God. Of course, this is commonplace in the later New Testament letters. You know, just flipping back, if you were, a page or two, just to make sure of that. Look, for example, at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last ever and ever. And again, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, though we won't look at it now because of time. John's Gospel is the latest of the four, and of course what is the climax of the Gospel according to John is that wonderful confession uh, when the man who is a doubter becomes a believer and says, my Lord and my God. I know that we have a Jehovah's Witness, ex-Jehovah's Witness (laughs) in our presence. Is that right, my brother? Mm -hmm. And uh, I read a Jehovah's Witness tract. I don't know if you can place it where it says that when he said, my Lord and my God, he was saying what everybody says every day, and he said, my God. Huh. Uh, and that's all he was saying, an exclamation of surprise. Would that be possible? wouldn't be possible, but that's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be telling us more about that later. Well, now, that's the position, then, that Peter holds, and the church holds under him, and uh, uh, there's no surprise in that. Let's turn now to the attack And the attack is a single attack, but in many commentators it's taken as two. I just thought I would emphasize that, because I think it's quite important. Chapter 2, verse 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's addressed there as the sovereign Lord, and they have denied that he is the sovereign they've denied the sovereignty of Christ the other great passage about their attack is in chapter 3 verses 3 and 4 above all you must understand that in the last day scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires they will say where is this coming he promised etc it never comes to pass but they denied the return of Christ the second coming or what the New Testament often just calls is coming because this is the greatest coming of all of course at the end of time I think it's just possible and I say it very carefully because um, I never want to criticise those who led me to Christ at all because I owe everything to them but I think when I was young there was a generation of evangelical preachers who tended to sell a short on the second coming Uh, I say that carefully but I think so often the sermon when I was a youngster was to get ready which of course is part of the New Testament teaching it comes in chapter 3 as we're going to see of 2 Peter (laughs) and you know if you were a kid then you very often hear these terrific sermons about him coming on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday you can go on saying woof woof too long can't you? and in the end if you go on saying woof woof and nothing happens people don't take it very seriously there was a great deal of woof-woofing when I was young. He's going to come tomorrow, he's going to come before the end of the week, so we going get ready, We might run over by a taxi quick. <laughs> and so on. Um, but that's not actually what the coming of Christ in glory primarily is about. Yes, he is going to come like a thief in the night. But the teaching which comes from that is that he is Lord of all, of course because he is the one who is going to stand at the end of history, close history. He is the one who says he's going to judge all men, which is a concept you just can't get around your mind, can you, when you think of the millions and billions of people. He is the one before everybody is going to stand, and he will decide every single person's destiny that you saw on your way here this morning. He is the destroyer of the old order, and he is the bringer in of the new order. So there's no question you're going to talk like that, of someone who's going to be that figure. Uh, I mean, it, it's like the beginning, isn't it? When you read the beginning of John's Gospel, who who is the one whom God uses as an agent to create the world? It's, a, it's, it's the second person of the Trinity. So what you have in the New Testament is that Jesus, um, pre-incarnate and the incarnate Jesus the risen Christ the sovereign Christ uh, at the end of history you have Jesus at the beginning and end of history don't you? so if you were the devil and working away in your study what would you think (laughs) was the best way to dislocate the whole world view that people had? why you destroy that idea of creation and you destroy the idea of the second coming wouldn't you? which is exactly what he's done so the kids today at school don't believe in the creation. And they certainly don't believe in the second coming because they've never heard of it, probably. And if they did, um, they wouldn't know what they were talking about. And furthermore, if you wanted to do your work really thoroughly as the devil, you would, as far as possible, foul up those t- t- things, wouldn't you? You'd get every conceivable crank on both ends, wouldn't you? Uh, and I think it's one of the things the devil loves to do with important doctrines, every now and then he brings about a lot of idiots who foul up a doctrine and say no one can take it seriously again. I think amongst some of the churches honestly in London when the charismatic movement hit it was rather like that. I think of one fourteen year old boy from one of our families who went along to one of the churches, should be nameless, and he got there on a Sunday evening the whole of the congregation was lying on the floor barking on their backs. He 'd taken a chum from school, his parents weren 't very keen for him to go because they thought that he would they wondered what he would meet. But this boy of fourteen or fifteen and his pal from school came back to their parents and said we don 't want have anything to do with it well naturally, would you uh, isn 't that a clever well actually he ever, he ever reached himself in that case and." <laughs> But, uh, you know, if you bring in this sort of foolishness, then you destroy uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and people begin to get frightened about it. Just people get frightened about the doctrine of the second coming and so on. So both these uh, verses, chapter 2, chapter 2, 1 and 2, and chapter 3, 3 and 4, are about the same thing. The denial of the coming, as it's called in the New Testament, this is the coming at the end of time, is exactly the same as the the denial of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Richard Borkham. Richard is, um, I suppose, the major commentator on 2 Peter and Jude. Uh, I wish he was 100% conservative, but he's 90% conservative, so he's worth reading. Um, tell him next time you write to me get a little bit more conservative will you (laughs) but what he says uh, is right the central theme of the false teaching was eschatological scepticism I assure you I don't use that language in the book that's the language these men use isn't it eschatological scepticism in other words unbelief about these final realities And I remember reading that, and sitting back in my chair and saying, isn't that extraordinary? Because as a theological student in the late 1940s, the central unbelief and scepticism of my professors was the second coming. Mm -hmm. Precisely that. And if he's not at the end of time, of course, he's not Lord, is he? Because what it means is that he is the God who will fold up what was once again. Just in case you wonder what we were taught, so long ago I've forgotten, and I was only (laughs) half listening because I was a Christian then, I'd just come out of the Navy. I uh, I wasn't going to be easily taken in. I realized what I was hearing was rubbish, and so I didn't pay much attention to it. (laughs) <laughs> but what was being taught me at those times by you know distinguished scholars where all the apocalyptic teaching of Jesus that is all his teaching about the future was actually the product of the early church I think it's just worth knowing what these people are teaching and that's been a very long standing view of the academic world that what you're getting is what the early church taught and they had misunderstood him Anyhow, I find it, you know, a month or two ago when I was looking at this seriously, I thought, is it not remarkable uh, Richard Borkham can tell me the central theme of the toggle makers of the first century is exactly what I was hearing at university in the 1940s and the early 50s. Uh, in, in short, what is being airbrushed out, of course, is a reckoning, uh, judgment, because here is the one who's spoken most about judgment I mean it is the language of Christ that is so terrifying, isn't it, about judgment and uh, he is the one who's going to come to bring, it into, to bring it to pass, not only to bring his people to, to heaven but to destroy the unbelief of the world so this, Jesus is responsible in scripture for creation and coming I looked this up, I have a a dictionary by Alan Richardson, which is what I would call reverent liberalism. It's quite valuable to know exactly what liberal teachers who are reasonably sincere are teaching. And I was very struck by the thing that he said, that he said the conservative evangelical is always at risk from Adventism that he's always at risk from people coming along and spelling out their own theories about the coming. Isn't that right? We are at risk from that. Because there are always cranks everywhere under every stone, aren't there? You see, and because the cranks made it seem ridiculous, then people seem to believe the real thing. That's what I was saying just now. It's one of the devil's tricks, I think. great friend of mine was um, very, really a very distinguished Christian thinker. And at the time when, some of you may be able to remember, I'm very glad if you can't remember, there was this book called The Myth of God Incarnate, which was a direct attack on the deity of Christ and incarnation. And this friend of mine was asked to meet a number of these liberal theologians at Cambridge. And he told me they spent the first morning... Discussing, and it was like two wrestlers that just cannot get hold of one another because the, operation, the opposition was so slippery you couldn't get hold of them. He told me that at lunchtime they had a cafeteria. The, uni- the college they went to, Cambridge, had laid on this for them, and they went to the cafeteria and they were walking along this cafeteria to get their fish and chips or whatever it was. And he found himself just in front of the um, chief heretic, who shall be nameless. My friend was very quick witted. As they were holding out his pl- their plates, you know, their fish and chips, he said to him, I won't say even his Christian name, but we'll pretend it was Bill, well, he said, Bill, do you worship Jesus? And immediately the answer came, of course not. He was a clergyman of the Church of England who took services of the Lord's table and preached. Who was able to defend his position with clever words until someone actually getting their fish and chips just said, oh by the way, do you worship Jesus? Of course not. Amazing giveaway. They don't ordinarily give away themselves quite like that. bear that in mind by the way when we come on to this whole matter of knowledge in 2 Peter we mustn't be frightened of knowledge we need people who've got knowledge if that friend of mine hadn't been there they might have spent two days discussing and have got nowhere but he knew where to put the the point secondly the attack on scripture well as you know in the later New Testament letters, you begin to get this wonderful emergence of Holy Scripture to Timothy 3.16. I don't need to remind you of uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, as you know, for the three reasons. One, to make you wise to salvation. One, to correct and rebuke and teach you. And one to, uh, three, to co- equip the saints for the work of the ministry. A very useful book, therefore, isn't it? It all those three things. That's what it's, it's, it's given us for. And so you're likely in these later... And 2 Peter is certainly late. uh, You're likely to find the emergence of Scripture. And so you do. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. By the way, this is a very, very closely knit letter. Uh, Logically, it's all tied together rather like a jigsaw. There are no loose bits at all. Chapter 3, verse... What did I say? 15. 15 and 16. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience... That's a very important truth we're coming to. If I forget it, just uh, kick me, will you, uh, Roger? Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters. His letters contain something <coughs> that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Isn't that fascinating? And by the way, that's a wonderful duo, ignorant and unstable. Actually, they are the two hardest people to deal with in a congregation very often. Those who are completely ignorant and are always asking ridiculous questions for they who haven't thought anything through. But also those unstable people that every congregation has, doesn't it? Who are always getting a, in, in a muddle, who are always problem people when it comes to understanding these things. Scripture. What was the scripture of the early church? Well, the scripture of the synagogue was lesson one, the Pentateuch. Second lesson, the prophets. And all that the early church did was to add a third lesson. So you were likely to find, if you went into a very early church, lesson number two would be from the Pentateuch, which of course is enormously valued with the Ten Commandments and the creation and all the rest of it. Cannot ignore the Pentateuch, then you would have a reading from the prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, whoever, and then you would have a reading of the apostles. It was in that way that the early church showed that they were putting the apostles' teaching on the level with the Pentateuch and with the prophetic literature. And of course, that uh, comes out, doesn't it? I mean, we, we haven't time to look at many. Just flip back to Colossians chapter 4. Would someone read verse 16, please, in a loud, clear voice, so that the old ladies of the back can hear? Chapter 4, verse 16. <laughs> please, quickly. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. Interesting, isn't it? So this is not just for you, it's for the Church of Laodicea as well. And you get the same thing if you want want, uh, a note, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 27. So already the Apostle himself knows that his letters are to be uh, reviewed as authoritative. a remarkable thing, there's no doubt he knew that. And he insisted upon people recognising it. Now what's the attack on Scripture? This is something that has interested me very much in, and i thinking about 2 Peter in the last few months. It's not under direct attack. Uh, the scriptures are sacred. The Old Testament is sacred to uh, Jews who become Christians and so on. So it's not a direct attack at the castle. The attack has to do with interpretation. And this is a very tricky area, isn't it? I remember students coming out to me and saying, well, that was just your interpretation, wasn't it? And, of course, some of the preaching we hear is just somebody else's interpretation. So let's have a look at that. It's one of the key things in 2 Peter, and it comes in the second half of chapter 1. And this is why Peter uh, is in a hurry, before he dies, to get this done on paper. There are two parts, the testimony of the apostles and the testimony of the prophets. The testimony of the apostles. We did not follow cleverly devised stories, which is what, by the way, the troublemakers were saying. They say it's just fairy stories. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitness of his majesty. I won't stop on that because that's so elementary, isn't it? Uh, The whole of John's Gospel is eyewitness testimony. We saw his glory. John chapter 20 is all about we saw, we saw, we saw, we saw. And when they have to choose that twelfth apostle, remember, he's got to have been with us since the the Lord's um, beginning (coughs) of his ministry. He's got to be, in other words, an absolutely first-hand witness. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is that. In other words, the voice from heaven interprets what they saw. For what is a fact without an interpretation? Well, there are lots of things you see that you may not be able to interpret correctly. There are lots of things you may see on the television that are interpreted incorrectly. I mean, this is this is quite a game. This is what Parliament is all up to, isn't it? they want to misinterpret what people are saying. Um, so this is kind of tricky area, isn't it? Here are the facts. No one denies these facts, he says. But what do they mean? Well, the voice didn't come out of his head, did it? He says, the voice came from heaven, saying, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves not only saw, we heard this voice. No, you can deny that, of course, the many scholars do deny that. But there it is in black and white that uh, in these very, very early days, here is someone saying, we not only saw his glory at the transfiguration, which he takes to be an anticipation of his glory when he comes in power, but we actually heard a voice from heaven which said, you won't understand this, so I will tell you what it means. This man in front of you, transfigured before you, is my only beloved son. He now goes on to the prophetic word. The prophetic word was a phrase used for the Old Testament as a whole. So he says we also have the prophetic word made completely reliable, uh, something completely reliable and you will do p- well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That simply means that on that great day when Christ comes <coughs> in glory... The whole universe will be lit up with his glory, but it will meet a divine illumination from within. We shall be quite unable to take in such glory, but we will be illuminated so that from within and from without we are able to understand the full glory of this one who is coming. Above all, you must understand, a very important phrase we shall come to again, that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. That's the most important verse here, and I want to fight hard for the NIV, because I think the NIV has got it right. So many commentators have got it wrong. And all, you must understand that no prophecy came about by a prophet's own interpretation. This means that Isaiah did not come down to breakfast one morning where the prophetess was making the coffee. And uh, well you remember his, one of his sons was Maha Shalal Hashbears. Mm-hmm. So Baz is sitting here, uh, gobbling his cereal, waiting to, go to get on his bike and go to school. And Azar comes down to breakfast and says, my dear, to the prophetess, of course I realize that I've got this, uh, I, I've been getting this thing completely wrong and uh, I've been listening to Hosea and others like it and I think what we've got to say is this I think we've got to change our view on this my interpretation of this particular thing therefore is this and I'm going to write my new book on this and this will be a bestseller because nobody else has seen it quite like this (laughs) now that actually is the academic game that they're playing at university I know what I'm talking about Um, It isn't that none of these men are sincere of course, but the only way you get anywhere academically is by publishing, I'm sure you know that. You have to publish a book if you want to get a chair in a university. And if you're going to publish something on things (coughs) that have all been written about by thousands of people before, you've got to find something new to say, haven't you? Otherwise you can't get it published. So it's a game really. It's a game in which every generation comes along and corrects the generation that has come before. And, um, well, we won't go into that now, but in some ways it's a, an awful waste of time and money a lot of this. But from time to time, of course, it comes along people who actually get to the heart of the matter. But it's very important to realise that, that Isaiah was not having a good idea that morning. What does it say about it? I mean, you've either got to believe it or not. As you were swept along by the Holy Spirit... So he gives us two reasons for believing that the interpretation of Scripture is correct. One, that God spoke from heaven. Well, of course, many people won't believe that. And one, that the Holy Spirit swept him along so he had no, no uh, reason to go in, uh, otherwise along that track. It does not mean, as we are constantly accused of saying, that Isaiah had no personality in it at all. Of course he did. When God uses us, he uses our particular personality. So the way Isaiah writes is different from the way that Jeremiah writes, which is different from the way Hosea writes. I would have thought that was common sense, wouldn't you? God respects our personality, but sees to it with the prophets that his word is given us. So we get that great statement from Jim Packer, to whom in my generation owes so much. The Bible is an interpretation. Not the Bible is waiting for you to interpret it. The Bible is an interpretation. Your job is to find out what that interpretation is. That's where the hard work is. Without facts, without interpretation, facts are meaningless. The Bible gives us the facts and the interpretation, and this is what we're studying when we go to our, our uh, desks and get to work. So what did the what did the false teachers do? And how did they influence the people who listened to them? Well, there's a very interesting word in chapter three, verse sixteen. Please turn to three sixteen, and nudge your friend if he's already slipping away, because this is very important. He writes the same way in all his letters. Speaking of them, of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That's rather delightful, isn't it? Paul saying, well, actually, I find it quite tough going. Paul, so do we sometimes, don't we? But then he goes on to say something very interesting, which ignorant and unstable people distort. The Greek word simply means twist. Well, that's what people do, isn't it? People twist and pervert and distort the scriptures. And you're going to be hearing about that uh, in the second session today. I pass it on my way across London Bridge um, sh- three or four times a week. For so there are these Jehovah's Witnesses often think, why aren't we there? But uh, that's another story. But I mean, there they are, as bold as brass, aren't they? You have to, you have to hand it to them. And there it is, a Bible stand. They tell us this is what the Bible teaches. And why should people think, of, since, since the people pass by completely ignorant? But in fact, of course, it is twisted and distorted. That's what the troublemakers said about Peter they said you're telling us fairy tales and chapter 2 verse 3 he returns the compliment in their greed these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories attack number 3 Attack number one, they attacked the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. I just can't at the moment think of any theological attack on him at the moment, but you'll always be hearing it sooner or later from theological circles. Second attack, attack on scripture. Not a direct attack, but an indirect attack. Yes, we believe the Bible, but we interpret it differently from you. Uh, We see it differently. Now we get attack number three, the gospel. Now the language of gospel in 2 Peter is the language of promise. Now you get it in chapter 1 verse. My eyesight is not what it was. Verse 4. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises. Just to clarify that by the way, uh, we need a cross reference just occasionally, don't we, to exercise your frozen fingers. Acts chapter thirteen thirty two, please. Acts thirteen thirty two, will someone read it in a loud voice so that the deaf people at the back can hear. Acts thirteen thirty two. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. The good news is what God promises. So that ties up the Old and the New Testament. So the Gospel is the result of the promises of God. And the promises of God are always both for now and for then. So in verse 4 actually, there are promises for now, verse 4, that we may escape, escape the corruption that is in the world through uh, lust. And, of course, the promise of the future is that one day we shall escape it completely as we, are, we die and rise again. So the promise then is of escape, as we're going to see in a moment. What a remarkable and dramatic way Peter has of talking about that. Now, how would you attack the Gospel? But again he doesn't do a direct attack Which I think is so fascinating You'll find the answer in chapter 2 verse 19 You there? And now I'm going to read it I hope everybody's going to look at 2.19 Because it's so clever They promise them In other words they say we have a promise too And what is their promise? Freedom That's the very word of the gospel isn't it? The gospel is a gospel of freedom but theirs is a different freedom. Theirs is freedom from judgment and freedom from the law, freedom from moral restraint which makes them of course slaves of depravity. (laughs) I think that's quite remarkable really. If the devil is going to make promises, there will be promises substitutes for the gospel and so there will be promises of well let's pluck it out of the sky prosperity or there will be promises of physical healing in other words there will be substitute promises which actually on the surface look a great deal more attractive than what you hear in the gospel hall or at the evangelical church who doesn't want prosperity of course we all do we're all greedy at heart The language of salvation in 2 Peter is really fascinating. It's this language of escape and rescue. Uh, I was converted at age 15, kids camp and so on, and uh, the verse that was used was Revelation 3.20, and I know many people don't like Revelation 3.20 as an evangelistic verse, and all we evangelists have thought about this much more than I have. But I can only say that by the grace of God I was saved at that camp. But it is a fairly bland introduction, isn't it, compared with "Flee from the wrath to come. Is that right? And the language of "Flee from the wrath to come is very much more New Testament than asking Jesus into your heart, isn't it? And so I want to say that this is the language of 2 Peter. It's about escaping. And in chapter 2 we have two (laughs) stories, one about Noah and one about Lot. And they are both immense rescue operations. The one we know is probably the greatest rescue operation that you can imagine, can't you? We won't read it now to save time. But we're told that Noah was doing two things. He was preparing the ark for many, many years. But, bless his heart, he was not only in charge of the shipyard, but he was preaching at the same time. Interpretation, you see. Got it? No good saying... Uh, um, this is a remarkable art you know it's going to be larger than the Ark Royal and all that sort of thing Uh, you've got to say why you are doing it haven't you you've got to interpret it so he's standing there on his soapbox preaching and and they're saying you are a silly old fool aren't you now why don't you come to the football match it's fun you know and uh, he said no I'm afraid my afternoon on Saturday's got to be given to this well you know (laughs) you've told the story many times more than I have some of you and then what's the Luke 17 uh, the flood came and destroyed them all well he prepared them for it hadn't he he said you've got to escape and they said don't be a fool how could you ever think the sort of thing would happen well if you want to spend your time in Calvary like this it's a fascinating boat, but it must have cost you a fortune and so on and there came a day when the flood came Luke 17:26, and destroyed them all but lot is almost more astonishing isn't it and we won't go into now there really isn't time but quite frankly it needed the force of angels and even then he only got away with the skin of his teeth didn't he he's told to escape and he can't it's very interesting actually you know the commentators um, they say in the Old Testament it's a very unedifying story and in the New Testament as in 2 Peter it says that he had a tormented soul and they say how oh, do you put the two together well the answer why the commentator can't put the two together is that he hasn't got any pastoral experience that's the reason you see far more than the person in his study haven't you met real Christians who are thoroughly compromised in their lives of course you have (coughs) good people who've got themselves into a position from which they badly can escape here is a man who was tormented in his soul he was a genuine believer but when when he told his sons-in-law what was going to happen what did they do they joked. This is a joke. That's the mark of someone who's compromised, isn't it? So nobody, nobody believes what he says. And his wife, well, of course, her heart was with her bridge parties and all the fashionable ladies. I'm sure there were lots of fashionable ladies in that very wealthy. Remember you remember the... the, the, the it was the garden, like the Garden of the Lord, wasn't it, that plain? Lot had chosen it because it was such a beautiful place. It was a green and pleasant land. And judgment can come to green and pleasant lands, as we may find to our cost one day. But of course no one believed it. And it came, and only because the angel rescued him did he escape at all. And that's the picture you see you get, isn't it, in 2 Peter. It's a fairly desperate thing, isn't it, that picture? Well, I wasn't told that, of course, when I was a teenager, but I came to realize it later on, that what had happened was that I'd been rescued. Christianity is a rescue religion, which is why it can't ever be respectable. Right. Right. What are we to say about these troublemakers? I think we have to say in the end that they were by definition men of the world. And they were in positions of great responsibility in the visible church. And when you get men of the world in positions of responsibility in the visible church, that is the quickest way to make the church a worldly church. it's quite false isn't it to think that the church in the 20th century goes down because of modern materialism Israel was never defeated because the enemy was strong Israel was defeated because they were weak and compromised (coughs) and uh, if the Church of England and other of the great denominations of the Western America have folded up or are folding up it's because of betrayal from within not because People want fun. Without we destroy ourselves from within. That's because men of the world get positions of great responsibility yeah. and destroy the gospel. So there are the three attacks. I don't think we'll stop and talk with questions now. I think we'll press on. Is that all right? How are we for time, brother? Uh, yeah. Do. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't be nice about it. If I had a lovely watch that I bought at Sainsbury's for eight pounds. Isn't it wonderful to get a watch for eight pounds? And I lost it, so I'm not mourning over it. Uh, I shall have to go to Mr. Sainsbury again. Three-failed resistance. You ready for it? Yeah. Right? Wake up, brothers and sisters. There's resistance to the attacks. Thank God. And the three resistance, the threefold resistance, comes along three lines: one true faith, one true knowledge, two true knowledge, and three true evangelism. Right, one true faith. Well, we saw at the beginning, didn't we? They had received a faith as precious as ours. But what follows, verse five to seven? For this very reason, make every effort. By the way, you don't hear this enough, I think, today. But two Peter is full of effort. Several times he made an effort to write them and so on. Make every effort <laughs> Add to your faith or through your faith goodness to goodness knowledge to knowledge self control to self-control perseverance to perseverance godliness to godliness mutual affection to mutual affection love. Do you see the, the ladder from faith to love? That means from faith to From the beginning to maturity. What he's calling for here is exactly what Paul calls for in the Corinthian letters. He's calling for people to grow up. And stop being little children. For if you possess... By the way, another thing the Bible is full of is not only interpretation. It's full of incentives. Do you give them enough incentives when you preach? Here are the incentives. People know what they ought to do. They don't want to do it. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will will keep you from being out of work and unproductive. So why are so many dear Christian people useless and out of work? It's because they're not growing up. God puts people to work as they grow and mature. Whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble, and I think that really means fall like the apostates, and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I'm sure every one of us would covet that rich welcome. Now, brothers and sisters, this does need working out. Calvin and Luther said that this making your calling an election sure (coughs) was a matter of your own subjective assurance. Other equally able writers, and I say that with care, because, of course, Calvin is a great one, believe it is objective, and that what he's saying is that without these qualities, you won't be saved. Now, what he means by that is simply what James says in his letter, that faith without works is dead, faith without repentance is dead, faith without love is dead. He's simply defining what is saving faith. He's not saying that these things are works that earn salvation. He's saying these things are those that prove that your faith was one like the apostles. Well, we can discuss that. You may... Not agree with that, but it does seem there to me that this is not subjective. But he's talking in James's terms. This, This happens much more towards the end of the New Testament. They say, Is it real? Is it authentic? In other words, they're asking people whether what they take to be their faith is the real McCoy. You get that in Galatians 5.21 Don't you? We won't turn to it now that he says if you don't have these fruit, this fruit Of the spirit Then you won't enter the kingdom of God That's really realistic talk isn't it? I'm not sure if we say it enough Roger <coughs> So faith that is real faith That's how you resist Faith that is grown up faith that hasn't forgotten that I was saved and therefore frittered away my life uh, in in doing nothing. It's faith that is loving. It's faith that is knowledgeable. It's faith that is self-controlled. Probably these are the things that the apostate teachers left. I wasn't going to say this, but I remember as a student, you know, some of the very radical teachers rather love to show you that, they love to swear in front of you. Do you know what I mean by that? The sort of... I, I do that, of course. I know you're all rather prissy, and you went to do these things, and you're all frightened, aren't you? And you went drink, and you went not do this, and all the other. They rather love doing that, showing off in front of you. So, genuine faith, that was part of the response. So, part of the response to apostate teachers is faithful people. Not necessary. You're not, it's interesting, isn't it, in this letter, he's not talking to ministers. It's amazing how Peter and Paul often bypass the ministers and go straight to the people. So he's saying just to the ordinary Christian people, he's saying if you are true people of faith, that that will that will stop a lot of this nonsense. And it is true, isn't it, that the bulwark against radical theology are live congregations. Or even one, you know, whenever I read about Balaam and his donkey, I, I I think of one or two wonderful old ladies I've known. You know, have you? Uh, I've met an old lady who went up to her radical pastor, who had arrived on the scene, and rebuked him. Well, she didn't know she didn't know what she was doing. I mean, she hadn't got any answers to what he had to say from the pulpit. but You ought not to talk like that. I'm sure he went back into the vestry and said, "Silly old donkey." <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry that would have an effect. That's the first response in faith. Second, knowledge. Now this is very important, add to your virtue, goodness, knowledge. There are two words for um, knowledge in 2 Peter. You will forgive me from using the Greek, not that I'm (laughs) any good at Greek, it's rusty, mine is rusty but I do know these two great words and the first is epignosis and that is the word that is used here at the beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1 through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord I sometimes tell medical students that uh, they're speaking Greek all day long this just wakes them up you know, if they've gone to sleep in the pew (laughs) well they are diagnosis, prognosis they're all Greek Diagnosis is seeing through what's wrong with you. Prognosis is looking into the future and telling (coughs) you what is going to happen. And epignosis is just the same kind of word. And what it means is that knowledge that God grants us at conversion. Bill came to know the Lord last month, we say, don't we? That's epignosis. It's not an intellectual thing, it's that wonderful sense I now know the Lord. My sins are forgiven. I'm out of darkness into light. Uh, It's the most wonderful thing, isn't it? It's got nothing to do with whether a person got a degree from university. Once I was blind, now I see. That's epignosis. But the shorter word, gnosis, is simply the knowledge you gain. Now we haven't time to follow this through, but I just want to insist upon it in your own work. We must insist upon the young Christians being willing to do the hard work of gnosis. God grants some epignosis, the knowledge of himself. But it's not just the pastor who should be in his study, working and thinking. There's a great deal in this letter assumes that the Christian, having their mind having woken up, as everything else has woken up, will think hard. Chapter 3, verse 1, what does that say? this is my second letter to you I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking again in chapter 1 and chapter 3 first of all you must understand it doesn't mean that we're expecting people to go to evening school or anything like that although maybe that would help was a good evening school but a Christian is obligated to think through their faith so that they are not helpless in understanding what God has done I just think that's very important. So right at the end of the letter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? Grow in the experience of God's grace. That's subjective. Grow in the knowledge of Christ. That's more objective. It's a lovely sentence, isn't it? Not just grow in grace, but grow in grace and knowledge. Gnosis. Or is it epignosis? I can't remember. There you are, I've been found out. Please don't downplay that. Uh, It's like our word nous, isn't it? Our Christians ought to have some nous about them. So when they're walking over London Bridge, you know, and, uh, well, of course, they don't get tackled there, but, I mean, they come to my front door. I bet they come to your front door. I sometimes wonder what sort of reception they come from at the square where I live. I don't think... some of the people I know, they haven't got the nerve to answer them, so they just slam the door, of course. But if we're Christians, we should have some Nouse, shouldn't we? Of course we should. And that's what he's talking about here. I've put down in my notes 1 Peter 1, 13, 14. What was that? I've forgotten. 1 Peter one thirteen fourteen. Therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? Sober thoughtful knowledge. So here's the second. The second response to the attack. I think they're really interesting, these three. I find found them, and I haven't worked them all through yet. One, a congregation of faithful people. So that when this false teaching begins to go rocket around some of the assemblers in the area, they know what they believe. They don't have to be nannied by the pastor. He doesn't have to prop everybody up. To knowledge, people are knowledgeable, they understand what they've been taught, they know what the Christian faith is about, they recognize error when they hear it. Thirdly, evangelism. Back to 2 Peter, two of the most glorious verses in 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 15. Since I'm in 1 Peter, that won't help. All right, if you were half asleep as I was just then, please wake up. Chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Chapter 3, verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So, one commentator says that means that the period between the re- resurrection and the return is the period for evangelism, and I'm sure that's right. But I think he may have his eye very specially on the churches of those days and the people who've been drawn aside by the false teaching. Don't okay, let's forget those who've been drawn aside, and uh, let's go after them too and evangelize them. Incidentally, I was uh, speaking on 2 Peter to. Uh, <coughs> 20 ministers in Essex and uh, I tell them that that morning I was trying to work out why people can say 2 Peter's not apostolic so I went through 2 Peter before breakfast that morning before I went to them and I made a list of all the great apostolic truths in 2 Peter and I popped it in an envelope and popped it in my pocket and I said um, here is my list I said I popped it in my pocket before breakfast this morning and then I popped it back in my I don't know why I did. I part back with was a shout of laughter. I don't know why. You know, it's always rather disconcerting when someone laughs at something which isn't meant to be a joke. (laughs) But I realised afterwards, of course, they thought I was going to read it out. And I suppose the momentum was on the other, what I was talking about, and I didn't want to do it then and then. But I am just going to stop for a moment and read out one. Because I think you can find at least 15 or 16 major New Testament truths in 2 Peter. But, there's one that's very, very special. And that is the patience of God. And I want you to see why it's very special by turning back to Exodus chapter 34. One of the great verses of the Bible which is repeated again and again through the Old Testament. And indeed Paul picks it up as well. Exodus 34 verse 6. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets etc and in the morning he carried the two stone tablets in his hand and when the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, in other words he interprets his name, this is what my name means, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, Abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin—that is patience. Yet he does not leave the godly unpunished; he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And that's exactly to Peter, isn't it? It's full of the patience of God, but there's a clear warning to the troublemakers that they will be punished. And that punishment may lead to trouble in future generations, which it so often does, doesn't it, as the radical theologists destroy not one generation, but the generations that follow. Well, 1 Peter chapter 3 is full of that marvellous patience, slow to anger. But then there comes the time, the flood came, it destroyed them all. Then let's leave that out. So in response, in response then to the attack, the troublemakers were confronted or ought to have been confronted in these congregations for which Peter apparently felt a responsibility in his travels. And this get this clear is so important. We may be getting further attacks. Much of the liberalism I know. Made it away. Partly, because they had no fruit; it was quite useless. It destroyed many lives. It's sometimes so useless, isn't it? At least, I think of two men who came to my theological college, having been destroyed by liberal theology. They were destroyed because they weren't converted. They were theological; st- uh, they were ordinance. They were converted straight away when they came to theological college. Isn't that a lovely place to be converted. <laughs> <laughs> and one, uh, they're both in heaven today. One is, uh, up in the north and one in the far east. Wonderful ministers. Um, it's a great thing to be th- converted to your theological college because you won't listen to any nonsense from the tutors, will you? You say, Well, I know. Once I was blind, like you. Now I see. <laughs> So here is a wonderful defence and it's a defence that congregations can... I know that as evangelists most of you don't have charge of congregations. You have an even perhaps greater job but you also need to have sympathy with the pastors, don't you? Mm. Very important, isn't it, not to be a fly-by-night just comes in and drops their bomb and goes... (laughs) Pastors desperately need encouragement, very often, and you can help them by telling them what will strengthen their congregation: one, a faith that grows and work grows up; two, a real knowledge, and they should expect that. And uh, you should say, I'm, "I can't come and try and evangelise in your church if you don't build people up with knowledge afterwards." Mm-hmm. That's madness, isn't it? What are you doing? I think our midweek well in my day and I was, I think it's still looking at what William is doing at St. Helens, the midweek readmark learning things I think are some of the most important in the church. That's when they really study, and ask questions. Every church should have something like that, shouldn't it? Well you pass you evangelists better tell them they don't know. <laughs> what was the third one? Evangelism. If in a church there is a congregation of people whose faith is growing up and there are people in the congregation who know that stuff who've got some notes who got some <coughs> sleeping partners and if there's evangelism going on how hard that is to keep at the top of the agenda if you're a pastor isn't it? I know that that's another thing you have to encourage them in of course but if those three things are there you've got a response with their lives with their knowledge and with their evangelistic zeal Those who attack the central citadel will not win. And I think I've said enough.